0: Hello, and welcome to the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, TraumaCast series. I'm your host, Dr. Babak Serrani, Associate Professor of Surgery at the George Washington University Hospital. This session is being recorded at the second annual John P. Pryor Memorial PenTrack meeting in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Joining us today is Dr. Carrie Sims, Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. In brief, hemorrhage remains the most common cause of preventable death following trauma. It is well recognized that some patients remain persistently hypotensive and unstable or go on to die following hemorrhage despite adequate timely control of the source of bleeding. The exact cause for this remains uncertain, and increasing attention is being paid to the endocrine sequela following hemorrhage. Dr. Sims has dedicated her basic science and clinical research to investigating what she refers to as the vasoplegia of hemorrhage, and we will be discussing these points with her today. Uh, Let's start by asking you how you even came upon this topic.
1: Um, Well, I think as most uh, research topics uh, occur, I came about it at the bedside, at the patient's bedside. Um, I was a a first-year fellow in the intensive care unit at Penn, And we had the typical patient who was in a um, uh, multi-trauma, in a motor vehicle crash, broken pelvis, open abdomen, uh, liver laceration, and he had gone to the uh, IR and the OR uh, for embolization and came up to the intensive care unit where he became progressively more unstable. So uh, we thought maybe he was bleeding again, despite the fact that his hemoglobin had remained stable. His blood pressure was dropping. We got started on pressors. Uh, and we sent him back to IR where they didn't see anything, he was completely uh, uh, hemostatic. Um, nonetheless, he came back to the, um, to the ICU and remained quite unstable, and we were progressively going up on our levophed to about 20, he was stopped making urine, uh, and I decided that I would put in a swan, and I know that swans are, in our ICU, sort of a four-letter word, um, but we put in a swan, nonetheless, and the uh, a systemic vascular resistance was extremely low, it was somewhere in the 400 range. Uh, So he looked all the world like he had sepsis. Uh, And I thought, you know, I've never heard of that being described so early. Is this what's going on? Um, And so we had been using a lot of vasopressin for septic shock, uh, and we uh, decided that we would put him on uh, some vasopressin. And lo and behold, I put him on uh, 0.04 units of vasopressin, and his levofed started to come down. He started to make urine. He looked fantastic. I was like high-fiving my residents, and I was extremely pleased with myself, as (laughs) all first-year fellows are in the intensive care unit. Um, And then uh, Dr. Pryor came in the morning, and uh, uh, he was not so pleased that I was treating a trauma patient who had suffered hemorrhagic shock with a presser. Uh, and uh, under no uncertain terms let me know that that was not appropriate, that I was reckless, that I uh, clearly did not know what I was doing, and that I needed to go back to the literature and uh, provide some support for my reckless behavior.
0: He was insightful.
1: He was. Um, (laughs) So I, I, of course, was very... uh, My my feelings were extremely hurt at the moment. Uh, The patient was doing well. Um, and, but I did go back to the literature, and I think that, that was a you know a, a wise thing to do. Um, and there were several case reports of using vasopressin in, in order to treat intractable hypotension following uh, hemorrhagic shock. And there was this really wonderful article by Morales and Landry in uh, Circulation 1999. Uh, and in this article, they talked about two patients who had had um, <clears throat> hemorrhage from variceal bleeding, uh, and that both of these patients went on to Uh, uh, get banded, but continued to have very low blood pressure. Uh, They were resuscitated. It was clear they were not bleeding anymore. Uh, They started on pressors, and uh, because it was Landry, they started those patients on vasopressin, and lo and behold, the patients did well as well. Um, So they took it back to the lab, which is the next thing you want to do, and um, they did a very interesting study in which they looked at mongrel dogs. Uh, They lined up the dogs, um, bled the uh, animals down to a mean arterial blood pressure of 40, let them passively bleed to maintain that, let the animals um, passively take up the, um, the shed blood, then started to actively resuscitate them, uh, and the, um, they required um, pressors at some point. And the only pressor that would actually return their blood pressure to normal was vasopressin. And when they looked at the vasopressin levels, at the initiation of the shock, they were extremely high in the 300 range. But at the time when they started to require vasopressors to support their blood pressure, their levels had dropped to 23 picograms per milliliter. So it suggested that during this whole resuscitation or this whole hemorrhagic shock, that the animals were in fact becoming vasopressin vasopressin insufficient. Uh, And I wondered if that was happening in humans and and our trauma patients as well. So we set off this whole uh, collaboration with uh, the trauma team and the ICU nurses to look at this issue.
0: All right, so let's go down that road. Um, what happened, and are vasopressin levels diminished in the human following hemorrhage?
1: They are. Uh, in fact, they are diminished. So we uh, enrolled 21 patients over the course of six months, um, and these patients were all patients who came in with presumed hemorrhage. They were all hypotensive and received blood products before going to the operating room or the, uh, the IR suite. And what we found was that when you arrived to the um, trauma bay you, and you were bleeding, your vasopressin levels were very high. They were 20, 250. Um, to 500. Uh, So they were very high. However, despite ongoing bleeding and the need for blood products, crystalloid, and pressors, um, vasopressin levels actually fell uh, to less than 10 um, over the course of 12 hours in in half of our patients. Um, So they do develop a relative vasopressin deficiency, uh, and I think that's this whole uh, project to look at whether or not treating uh, hemorrhagic shock with uh, vasopressin early during the course of resuscitation would be advantageous.
0: And so that brings you up to your clinical trial now. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's discuss the study design. Where do you stand?
1: All right. So the, um, there are two other uh, studies that have looked at vasopressin in terms of resuscitating patients uh, that I feel compelled to sort of mention at least. The first one is um, in <clears throat> Austria with Dr. Wenzel. And his model is slightly different. He's really looking at patients who are uh, catastrophically hypotensive. And they they will give them three doses of 10 units uh, of vasopressin as the resuscitation. They're still ongoing and enrolling patients. And they've only enrolled 30 patients, I think, in the last three years. Uh, So a very difficult study to actually do. The other one was um, Dr. Cohn's study in, in UT Southwestern. Uh, And he enrolled 78 patients in which half of them were randomized to receive saline and the other half were uh, randomized to receive vasopressin. they got a four-unit vasopressin bolus followed by 0.04 units per minute in addition to 200 mLs of um, saline over five hours. And And although that study was not powered to look at mortality, they did in fact find a mortality difference. The patients who received vasopressin had a mortality rate of 13%, whereas the patients who received normal saline uh, was 25%. So, though it wasn't statistically different, the, it wasn't powered to look at that. Uh, so, our study is slightly different. Um, patients who come to the University of Pennsylvania will be enrolled under exception from informed consent for emergency research, uh, and they will receive a, a four unit vasopressin bolus, followed by 0.04 units of vasopressin um, per minute uh, for 48 hours. Uh, should they receive, uh, they have to require six units of blood product, not just packed red cells, but six units of blood product, uh, and they will be qualified uh, to be enrolled in the study using exception from informed consent.
0: And what's your endpoints?
1: Our endpoints are looking at uh, blood product usage over the, the, the uh, first seven days uh, and complications. It's not powered for mortality either.
0: Now, what if the patient resuscitates more quickly Can you titrate the vasopressin, or are they obligated to complete the course?
1: You can titrate it, and there's actually titrated, uh, unlike the previous studies, it's titrated to a mean arterial blood pressure of 65, uh, and you can turn it down, and you can turn it up to 0.04 units to maintain that mean arterial blood pressure of 65. Um, And I think that's actually really important, because vasopressin only works in patients who are vasopressin deficient. If you give vasopressin at the 0.04 unit level, uh, to normal healthy volunteers, it doesn't increase their blood pressure at all, nor does it increase the blood pressure in patients who have high vasopressin levels. So, for example, patients who have cardiogenic shock, their vasopressin levels will be very high. So giving them additional vasopressin is not going to be helpful, and it will not improve their blood pressure. Vasopressin only works as a pressor when patients at the 0.04 unit, I should say 0.04 unit level, um, when patients are actually vasopressin deficient.
0: Now, vasopressin, obviously, is made in the brain. Mm-hmm. So are you enrolling TBI patients?
1: No. Uh, traumatic brain injury patients are actually excluded if they require neurosurgical intervention or a Lycox.
0: So that's the reason for exclusion, is this because, it compounds?
1: because, of, because of the compounding issue with the, with the vasopressin, absolutely. There's also some concern that if you give vasopressin, at least in animal models, if you give vasopressin to patients who have traumatic brain injury, you may actually increase the water content in the brain and increase swelling. Um, it hasn't really been borne out clinically, but it certainly has been shown in some animal models to be um, deleterious.
0: All right, now not to naysay this too much, but the VAST trial, which came out after your, um, your uh, clinical discourse <laughs> with John, um, showed a, in, in septic shock, showed a vasopressor sparing effect with essentially no mortality benefit. There's a lot of post hoc this and that, but the punchline is it lowers the levofed dose but doesn't really impact the mortality why do you think this would be any different considering the vasopressin stores are also diminished in sepsis
1: so that's a really good question actually and i think it all goes it comes down to what population and what is the etiology of the vasopressin deficiency so in septic shock and this, and we'll talk about the vast trial and their enrollment criteria in a moment but in septic shock the majority of patients who um anybody can get septic shock but the patients who actually are more at risk for getting septic shock and certainly those uh, who are at risk for dying it are older patients. Uh, age is an independent risk factor for septic shock. Trauma patients are by and far young patients, they're very young and the, the reason why patients get septic is very uh, heterogeneous. Uh, it's a urinary tract infections, it's pneumonias, it's bloodborne infections. Um, So it's a variety of different organisms from a variety of different sites, whereas patients who would be be qualified for our study are, by and large, patients who have lost a significant amount of blood, primarily from penetrating um, gunshot wounds. And they're young, so it's a very homogeneous population to be looking at. And then the third thing is really the timing. In order to be enrolled in the VAST trial, you had to have at least one organ failing, and then you had to have six hours of vasopressor use, um, or three hours of very high-pressor use. Um, And I think by the time that they started the vasopressin, they may have actually had the uh, horse out of the barn, whereas the majority of patients who die from traumatic blood loss die within the first six hours. So if you can start early, from the moment that they reach the trauma bay, you may actually have an opportunity to intervene and save lives.
0: Well, that's very interesting because your your previous data though suggested that the vasopressin levels become diminished after about six to twelve hours.
1: Uh, it's actually ha- it's really it's within six to twelve hours. So you can get it within three hours. It really is mostly a. Um, volume issue. So we found when we did our logistic regression, we found that the vasopressin levels diminished after the fifth unit of blood product. And there was a dramatic drop between the fifth and the tenth unit of blood product. Some of those patients actually got that tenth unit of blood product in the operating room. So within three hours, some of them had it within the first 12 hours.
0: And you suggested that most of your patients are going to be following penetrating trauma only because that's the patient uh, makes a pen. You're enrolling both penetrating and blunt?
1: Absolutely. Mm -hmm.
0: What about other hormones and how do they interact, specifically now we're talking about cortisol?
1: So I think the, um, I, I think the neuroendocrine milieu following hemorrhagic shock is really a black box. Uh, and it really, um, we have demonstrated, at least uh, in, a, in a small cohort of patients, we have demonstrated that almost every hormone that you can produce, whether it be thyroid hormone, cortisol levels, aldosterone level, uh, vasopressin, all of those hormone levels are actually dramatically decreased in patients who are the most sick, or patients who, who then go on to require large volume resuscitation with either blood or crystallite. So it's not clear if that is just a marker for severity of disease, or if in fact treating those deficiencies may be important. Um, so I, I think that we're just beginning to, to get the tip of the iceberg. Uh, in terms of whether or not we're just recognizing it and whether or not we, we should be treating it. That would really be the next step to either look at both in the lab as well as in the at the bedside to see whether interventions actually work.
0: And that's I guess that's kind of what I'm building up to is increasingly one finds that for a variety of reasons, when we look at a single pathway, we look at a single molecule, a single drug, it looks fantastic in preclinical studies, and then they almost always fail in clinical trials because I think we've gotten so good with these soap bundles that it's not any one missing factor anymore. It's now a constellation of things that need to come together at the right time, the right dose, and the right magic potion. So ultimately, do you think it'll be vasopressin as the aha, or are you going to end up with some sort of a endocrine cocktail that the patient needs?
1: I think it's actually going to end up being being an endocrine cocktail, to be perfectly honest. And the reason I think that is that I think that there is a variety of different problems going on. Uh, You have a difficulty with production, so you have decreased perfusion to the organ that's making the hormone in the first place, so you're going to produce less of that. The patient is bleeding, so they're dumping all of their stress hormones into the bucket or onto your shoes along with the blood, Uh, and then we're resuscitating them with basically crystalloid, which does not contain a single stress hormone, or we're giving them blood product that has been donated by a very relaxed... You know, donor at the blood bank facility watching Oprah. So we're giving them no stress hormones at the most stressed opportunity that they have. Additionally, I think that we uh, somewhat kick ourselves in the um, adrenal glands uh, by giving patients atomidate, uh, for example. So we know um, both in our cohort as well as in other other um, investigators have shown that. Severely injured trauma patients come in with very low cortisol levels, and then we give them etomidate, which is also known to decrease the synthesis of cortisol. So we take a bad situation and we potentially uh, take out their adrenal glands. Any stress or uh, flight or fight or flight hormone that they would want is now taken out of the picture. And if you go back to Anane's data, in which they looked at um, looking at uh, uh, stimulating patients uh, uh, for cortisol levels. Um, they actually had to stop mid, not even mid, probably a third into the study, and exclude all patients who had gotten atomide. And they excluded them because the patients who got atomide, who then did not go on to have cortisol supplementation ended up having a much higher mortality. So it, it's certainly something to think about. And I think that the cocktail that we give patients will really be a combination of things. And it may be um, you know we monitor the levels, we may give a dose, and then we may, I don't think it's a permanent thing. I think it's a, you know, at some point you're adrenal glands and your pituitary are going to be able to, uh, and your thyroid are going to be able to um, respond appropriately. So it may be that we follow the levels and treat appropriately and then see out the outcomes. The problem is getting to the point where we can actually test these things and look at the outcomes.
0: Well, it's an interesting point you bring up regarding etomidate, because I've kind of, you know, always believed the animal data. and didn't know what to do about the human stuff. And uh, back when the country finally ran out of etomidate for a couple of weeks, we were forced uh, at George Washington to, to alter our RSI. And so we went to propofol, quickly realized that we had no adverse events whatsoever and have never gone back to etomidate since. And uh, we'll be looking at <clears throat> outcomes related to that and hope to get a... Um, more uh, scientific publication out of it. But there may be something there that, mm-hmm. you know, if, if it may hurt, then why bother using it when some other safe options are available?
1: Yeah, and I, th- I certainly think that, uh, I think it was Hildreth in the Journal of Trauma probably about three years ago uh, looked at at least, uh, they had a very short, small cohort. Again, that's, that's the other problem is that you, all these little small signers have very small cohorts. We need to like band together and, you know, do some meaningful studies. In their small cohort of patients, they didn't have any difference in mortality, but they did have increased length of stay and increased fluid requirements uh, with the use of atomidate. So it does make one—it does make one pause a moment, uh, especially since we also know that patients are coming in with low cortisol levels if they are in fact severely injured.
0: Let me take you back to the transfusion side for a second. Mm-hmm. So um, we know from the military um, data on whole blood transfusion that patients who receive whole blood transfusion um, in the theater seemingly do better. The reports are that they have a faster resolution of hemorrhage and just better overall, um, uh, faster overall resuscitation. We try here on the states to reconstitute the whole blood with a whole one-to-one-to-one type um, methodology and most massive transfusion protocols these days uh, have some sort of a one-to-one type algorithm underlying them all. What is, what are the vasopressin titers in banked blood so when i mix my one to one to one am i giving that patient vasopressin back also no how do you know
1: because we've measured it and it's less than four picograms per ml it's it's nothing Uh, so you are not and the additional thing is that vasopressin is highly unstable it lasts in circulation or in a, um, a donation bag for about 15 to 30 minutes so it's highly unstable you, you have to actually reconstitute it and give it, as opposed to just you know hoping that it's there in the first place. So I'm not sure the, I, I, I do agree with you that the whole bank blood, um, the whole fresh whole blood is better, there's something to that. I'm not sure it's necessarily related to the cortisol vasopressin. I think it has more to do with um, the factors actually being fresh and active, and also the platelets. We do know that if you take platelets and store them for more than three days, they're going to be non-functional, or less than functional, less optimally functional than you would have wanted them in the first place. Whereas if you give fresh whole blood, those platelets are in fact fresh and are active.
0: So just in the last uh, couple of minutes that we have here, we've spent a good chunk of the time uh, talking about your human research and the project that you're about to start. It it actually hasn't started yet.
1: Um, We are uh, beginning to enroll hopefully next week. We are going through our few practice patients. We've done our, we've gotten FDA approval, we've gotten Penn IRB approval because this is a study uh, sponsored by the National Trauma Institute. We have DOD approval. Uh, we've done our community consultation, which uh, I think was an extraordinary experience as an investigator to go out and speak to 250 trauma patients and their families and focus groups. I learned a tremendous amount of what patients and their families actually care about. Um, and we're ready to start. So we're really excited about right. that.
0: But let's just, uh, let's just kind of close our discussion maybe today by talking a bit about your basic science lab. What, mm-hmm. what are you doing there in regards to vasopressin? And you're running basically two different things in parallel. So what are you doing for the basic science side to, to, um, to back up the clinical science side?
1: So in our lab, uh, we are looking at um, supplementing uh, a hemorrhagic shock model with vasopressin. So our model is a decompensated hemorrhagic shock model. Uh, in rodents uh, that was um, promulgated by Dr. Chaudhry. It's a very good decompensated shock model. Uh, and we resuscitate the rats um, uh, with vasopressin. And what we have found um, is that rats that receive vasopressin have um, normalized mitochondrial function in liver and in kidney one hour and 18 hours. After the resuscitation, so the question really is, what is the mechanism behind that? Is it all purely based on blood pressure? Uh, so our control now is that we're trying to use levophed, uh to recapitulate the same blood pressure, and we're having a, a hell of a time doing that. It's because, and it's it's similar to Dr. Morales's paper where the um, the mongrel dogs were just not respe- re- responsive to the to the or the epinephrine, and we're finding that in the rats as well. So we're 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 trying to figure out how to get beyond the whole blood pressure issue. Um, we're doing some cell culture work where we're actually just adding vasopressin and trying to find pathways to see if it actually uh, mitigates um, the the damage uh, through mitochondrial pathway um, or not. So that's what we're doing.
0: Well, that's very fascinating. I'd be curious to know if this is just solely a um, uh, reconstitution of blood pressure and perfusion pressure, or if it gets down to the actual cellular energy metabolism pathways, you know, generating, generating ATP through the mitochondria.
1: Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating because um, if you take isolated hepatocytes and you put vasopressin on, you actually um, uh, can generate these small calcium oscillations that will actually change the endoplasmic reticulum and then uh, influence mitochondrial function and also increase the, um, the Krebs enzymes, the activity of the Krebs enzymes.
0: Well, this has been a very interesting discussion, and I wish you uh, well in regards to your study and look forward to reading its results. We've been speaking today with Dr. Kerry Sims regarding persistent endocrine, particularly vasopressin, dysfunction following hemorrhage. I would like to thank you for taking the time to record this session with us. This concludes another edition of the East TraumaCast. For copyright information and disclaimers, please visit us at east.org. For the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, I'm Dr. Babak Sarani.